Welcome to Adapt Peace Building. Hello listeners and welcome to our podcast where we talk about strategies to improve the practice of building peace around the world. Some of the topics and methods we will talk about in this podcast might be familiar to peace building practitioners and students of conflict as they include concepts of bottom-up peace building and inclusivity as well as local ownership and agency. My name is Marte Hifamidi. I am currently writing blogs for ADEPT and also finishing my master's in peace and conflict research. In the past, I've mainly done field research in the Colombian context, where the peace process is taking place, and I've been focusing on community-led peacebuilding initiatives. So today we'll be touching upon the topic of inclusive peacebuilding with Desiree Nielsen, who specializes in conflict processes and is an associate professor at the Department of Peace and Conflict Studies at Uppsala University in Sweden. Uh, Desiree, you've done extensive research on the topic of inclusive peacebuilding. And in 2012, Desiree published a very important quantitative study titled Anchoring the Peace, Civil Society Actors in Peace Accords and Durable Peace. And this article explained how the inclusion of civil society organizations in peace agreements leads to a more sustainable peace. Desiree and her research assistant Barbara have generously given us their time to talk about the work they have been doing on inclusive peace building. Desiree, you might want to start telling us about how you got into these ideas of inclusivity in peace building. Uh, I started working on the inclusion of different rebel groups into peace agreements. And I was doing that as part of my dissertation project. In connection to that, I was doing a data collection together with my colleague Isaac Svensson, who is a professor here at the Department of Peace and Conflict Research at Uppsala University. Um, the data collection uh, focused on finding information on the terms of of the peace agreement. So what kind of provisions are we including in peace agreements? And then one of the questions that we decided to include in this data collection was the inclusion of civil society actors. So it's kind of, it grew out of my dissertation project, which mainly focused on the warring actors to also consider the inclusion of civil society actors in peace agreements. And it was based on that joint collaborative project with ESEC that I decided to extend my dissertation project further and also look at non-warring actors such as civil society. Mm-hmm. So that's what how it, how it how started. It, yes, yeah. exactly. Mm-hmm. So, and did you already have an idea of what these non-warring parties had for influence? No, at that stage, I, I didn't know that much. I had been to uh, Liberia for other purposes doing field research, but not so much. So it's been work which we have been doing since then that has led to like a growing interest in the role of civil society actors and also political parties and and um, their role in both peace negotiations and peace agreements more broadly. That's interesting. And how did that eventually end up in producing an article or you producing an article on these civil society actors and how they influence the durability of peace. This was your 2012 article that we briefly mentioned in the introduction. Mm. 
Would you be able to give us a little bit of background mm -hmm. on that? So as I started to explore the role of civil society actors, I found that even when I was controlling for a lot of factors that you think might influence the durability of peace, I still found uh, that civil society, the inclusion of civil society actors has a significant effect in terms of reducing uh, violence between both the warring parties that have signed on to, to the settlement, but I also found that it had an impact on, on peace more broadly. And given that this was such an important finding coming out of my mm -hmm. dissertation project, I wanted to make it into a separate article and publish it as such. Yeah. So then I continued to to work on it and um, eventually it got published in the journal International Interactions. I think this article is one of the most groundbreaking articles that I've read on the topic of inclusive peace building. Oh, um, thank you. <laughs> yeah, uh, and I wanted to ask you about this influence then that uh, non-armed actors have, for example, on warring parties already. I think this is one really interesting dimension. And I was wondering, uh, first, maybe let's ask you about what you actually mean by durability of peace. Mm -hmm. By durability of peace, I'm focusing on uh, the government and the rebel groups that have signed on to the peace agreement first mm -hmm. and whether they are committing to peace. And we're here using data on armed conflicts from the Uppsala Conflict Data Program, uh, which is based here at the Department of Peace and Conflict Research at Uppsala. And in their definition, they are looking at all armed conflicts, which in a year result in more than 25 battle-related deaths. Mm -hmm. And if the warring parties then manage to sustain peace in terms of not going back to the battlefield at those levels of uh, engagement in terms of battle deaths, then we consider that to be uh, peace. And then my article also considers kind of the length of the peace, yeah. so it also takes that into account. Yeah. But then I think it's notable that it's not just in terms of the the government and the rebel groups that have signed on to the peace agreement, but we also see that it reduces the risk that we'll see this type of violence also by by other actors that are that are active. So basically what you're saying is that durability of peace on the one hand is a quality of peace. And with quality, we mean that there is a common understanding amongst power-sharing parties, like political parties, but also groups in society that really want to commit to an agreement, as well as a length or a durability, so a time frame. Mm, not quite. Okay. I think it's perhaps important to make the, the distinction between what we see as negative peace and positive peace, or mm -hmm. maybe more of a quality peace. And so, so what I've been looking at in this article is a negative piece, so mm -hmm. where you have just an absence of a return to violence involving the warring actors. But then peace can mean so many other different things. And that's something that I'm not able to touch upon in this article. I was not able to explore that, but I focused instead on, on the violence between the warring actors. Yeah. And then what possible extensions of this work could, for example, be to also look at other things like um, do we see an improvement in human rights or do we see a more just society in general or 
uh, or more more of an inclusive society, a more democratic society, for example. But those are other things which I am not able to touch upon within the framework of yeah. my article. So within the framework of your article, when we speak about inclusive peace building, that is basically just looking at what exactly? Um, well, maybe we shouldn't frame it as inclusive peace building, but like inclusion of civil society actors. So maybe I can touch upon that a little yeah. bit. So with the inclusion of civil society actors in peace agreements, I'm using a very broad definition. And we're looking at the, the formal peace agreement. So whether the text of the peace agreement then in some way made reference to civil society actors. And this may include, for example, that the civil society have been involved as a mediator or facilitate the process, and this is noted down in the peace agreement. It might be the case that the civil society actors actually had a place at the negotiation table mm -hmm. and signed on to the peace agreement. So we actually can see their signature mm -hmm. in the document of the peace agreement. Or it might be that civil society is given a specific role in the implementation of the peace agreement. Uh, so it might specify that they are part of a special committee which is overseeing some some part of the implementation of the peace agreement. Mm. Naturally, that doesn't necessarily mean that civil society was not important in other ways. But this is the definition that I had to work with since I was focusing on, on the text of the peace agreements. Maybe I can also add something about what this civil society means and how I used that concept and mm -hmm. I was more specifically looking at different types of actors that were not involved as warring actors but uh, women's organizations for example religious actors and so forth those were seen as part of civil society so if the peace agreement referred to them it could also be trade unions or or other actors and if the agreement made a reference to that type of actor then we saw that as inclusion of, of civil society. Also like a broader reference to civil society, like civil society in general is supposed to take an active role in the implementation was also noted as mm -hmm. civil society inclusion. So it both kind of, sometimes it was very specific in mentioning particular actors, but other times it was more broad and both those instances were seen as inclusion of civil society. Yeah, well, I think to give a little bit of a practical example on that, mm -hmm. I was part of an organization in Colombia that was actually monitoring the implementation mm -hmm. of the peace agreement. And in that, it was important to make a distinction between different spaces that were actually mm -hmm. formulated by the peace agreement for civil society or just citizens to participate in the implementation process. But there were also organizations specifically that were part of the drafting of the peace agreement mm -hmm. and then ultimately also would play a role as yeah. an organization. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I think that's a good distinction that it's, it's organizations as well as open spaces for participation for civil society, for civilians to actually be part of a process like that. Mm -hmm. So there was just a mm -hmm. small anecdote on mm -hmm. my side mm -hmm. from my experience in Colombia and that's mm -hmm. actually an interesting one that we can maybe touch upon mm -hmm. in the Absolutely. end yeah, with Barbara as well. So if I can ask you a question, why mm -hmm. is it so important to include non-warring parties, so non-armed parties, inside of this process? Why do you want them at the table? Mm -hmm. What is it that they bring? 
So the argument that I'm making within the framework of this article is that civil society actors can help uh, bring legitimacy to the process and create more of a broader ownership of the process and thereby also uh, make it increasingly costly for the warring actors to go back to the battlefield. Like without the support of the broader community, they have less incentive to go back to the battlefield and more to actually stick to the peace agreement. So that's the argument that I'm making. Yeah, so you're talking about incentives, but do you mean by that that there's also kind of a social pressure from the rest of society? Can you clarify what you mean by incentive? Mm. No, I think uh, it's more that it, it builds a broader legitimacy for the peace process as a whole. And the more specific mechanisms by which this takes place is something that I discuss in the article, but um, I think it becomes, if you have an increasing pressure from civil society and the population at large, uh, it becomes more difficult for the for certain segments of the warring actors to to then challenge this peace agreement. So if you, you have a more sustained base for it, it becomes like more of a movement for peace uh, yeah. in society. Well, that's interesting. So then you're also touching a bit on the social contract in a way, like between people themselves, if you want to go back after you've had, for example, in Colombia, a 52-year-long conflict, there's a really large stigma, which is already difficult to deal with people who were part of that conflict, but then to actually go back to it mm -hmm. is, I think, in a lot of communities in Colombia, what I've seen, it's a very big no-no. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of trauma, of course, also. Mm. Does this tap into that as well? Or not specifically? Not specifically, okay. I would say. Okay. So then I wanted to ask you, in the article you posed the question that peace is uh, more likely to prevail mm. uh, if you include these civil society actors inside of the peace agreement. But that doesn't necessarily speak about what comes after the peace agreement. Mm -hmm. What do you see as one of the most important ways in which to make sure that civil society is also included in the process that comes after? Do you think that there's mechanisms for a peace process? I think that uh, to some extent lies a little bit outside of what I've been able to explore within my research. Mm -hmm. So together with Barbara and my colleagues, we have been looking more on, on what happens before the peace agreement and how you can have civil society actors become involved in the peace negotiations rather than in the implementation process. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think to some extent, since I'm using this broad definition of what I see as inclusion, implementation is one important part of that, mm -hmm. uh, but it's, it's not the full picture. So I think more research needs to be, be done on various forms of implementation of civil society. Yeah. So could you maybe tell us a little bit about the research that you're currently conducting together with Barbara? Because I think that you've continued on this 2012 mm -hmm. article, but in a different way. Yeah. So something that I, uh, I noted together with my colleague Isaac Svensson was that there is a void in the literature in terms of, um, we don't know so much about how different types of civil society actors are involved during the peace negotiations. And by peace negotiations, we're here talking about those formal negotiations which take place between 
a government and a rebel group within the context of an armed conflict. So given that they are somehow engaged in peace negotiations, we want to explore both how different types of civil society actors are involved, but also the forms for this participation. So then Barbara uh, has been collecting data on this uh, mm -hmm. together with two interns here at the Department of Peace and Conflict Research. So that's uh, the ongoing project that we have. Yeah. And the project is uh, funded by the Folke Bernadotte Academy, which is based here in Sweden. Mm -hmm. And the Folke Bernadotte Academy really is uh, a think tank policy advisory organ. It's actually a government agency. That mainly supports peace they, research. That's not the, the main focus, but it's one of, their, one of their things that they are doing. Great. Which was, we, of course, are very grateful for. Yeah. So I also wanted to use the opportunity to have this podcast and ask both Barbara and you, Desiree, also about your personal, your personal views on it, because we've been talking about the research. I wanted to ask you, Barbara, also if you can uh, maybe expand a little bit on what Desiree talked about, different modes of participation and how you think they influence the process. Maybe also you have some examples that you want to share with us. Yeah, for sure. So in this project, we are collecting a lot of data on different types of civil society participation. And what's interesting is that we're looking at different times as well that they participate. So we can see that sometimes civil society can help establish contact between the partners, the, the warring parties, and they can also help inside the, the peace negotiations as mediators or as observers or even as full participants. Mm -hmm. And something that we've noted is that maybe they also have a very big influence on the streets and having a say in, outside the negotiating room as well. So we have been trying to kind of fill the gap on what we know currently about civil society participation, because when you look at it, when you look at the data, there's a lot that civil society can do in this kinds of um, context. So it's been very uh, interesting looking at all of this and finding out different ways that they can have a different influence and the, in the outcome of the peace agreement for sure. Mm -hmm. So I've separate, like brought up some of the cases that we looked at and that we think can be a bit of a... We have a lot of classic examples in this field of civil society inclusion, mm -hmm. but we also saw that there are a lot of different types of events or activities that civil society can participate on. And what we are trying to do now is maybe try to understand how that can influence now, since we haven't thought about that before. Do you have a couple of classic examples? Yeah, so, so yeah, because uh, we hear a lot about the Liberian peace process, because that was a very benchmark. And when you talk about it, everyone can't relate back to it, that the participation of civil society was very broad. And there's like a very classic and uh, case of the women's groups in mm -hmm. the in the negotiations that they locked they were outside the negotiating hall and they mm -hmm. closed the doors and didn't let anyone out of the negotiating room until they reached an agreement so that was a very powerful move that they did that really showed that people affected by the conflict are taking a a stance yeah. and saying that you are not allowed to leave until you 
actually come up with a peace agreement that is going to end the conflict. So that is a very symbolic moment, I would say. Do you know if they actually got a lot of their points across, these women's groups in Liberia? Um, I think the most important thing was that they wanted peace. And that was something that actually happened. And of course, it's difficult to say whether that was a direct result of the women's organizations. There were also other actors that were pressing for peace. So I think it was a a joint effort in in bringing about peace. Mm -hmm. Um, But what is interesting with the Liberian case is that the presence of the civil society actors also meant that, for example, the transitional chairmanship didn't go to one of the warring actors, which one could perhaps have expected. Mm -hmm. And instead it went to a businessman, Judy Bryant. So I I think there were important kind of elements of the peace agreements that that came about as a direct result of civil society actors and political parties being present at the peace negotiations. You can also see in the peace agreement that there are certain committees where they speak of women representation. And it's it's not, we don't know what would have happened in their absence, but at least we can see that there is this type of language in the peace agreement that seems to reflect those more. Yeah, that sounds very impactful, Yes, so to speak. Yeah. So also women's rights then, was that also something that became more advocated by these groups? Um, that I don't, I'm not sure of, of that. I'm just going to look into yeah. that. Yeah. When we look at the the data that we collect, it was very powerful that their big priority was the peace, so achieving peace. Yeah. So that's something also that we've been like finding out that a lot of the times civil society, they push very hard for peace. And just because it's a women's group, not necessarily they're pushing for women's, women's rights. rights. Yeah. No. So they can be more interested in maybe the broader aspect of peace and in the case of Colombia as well we know that they pushed a lot for land reforms and land rights as well which is something that kind of goes away of the mindset that we think oh women are going to talk about women's rights but they have a a broad role I think yeah Yeah. no I think women organizations in general in Colombia had a very big part in shaping the agreement Mm. to the extent that gender is very often mentioned in every point of the peace agreement Mm -hmm. and women's groups i've spoken to some representatives they were very enthusiastic about the amount of participation in the process leading up to the drafting and the signing but i feel like also in the implementation phase of course there is some initiatives that are being implemented but to have this differential approach in the implementation it's uh, it's a bit more challenging than they initially hoped it would be. Mm. Do you also have some classic example? I saw Colombia on your list. Yeah, so one thing that we look at uh, in this data collection now is not only the formal participation in the peace negotiations, but also in other types of activities that they can participate in. So a lot of maybe parallel forums, 
or consultations or mm. problem-solving initiatives. And in Colombia, I saw that that was the thing that happened as well. So that they had this uh, National Summit of Women in Peace. Yeah. So that was an official parallel forum. And that's one of the categories that we are trying to find more information as well. So how this different kinds of activities and events can also help the, like, the inclusivity, but also in the durability of peace maybe in the future. Yeah. So yeah, it's nice to see other types of inclusion, not only during the negotiation. And we saw that there's this um, summits or citizen consultation forums, or they have, um, in Sudan, for example, they had this big conference. It was like created and organized by the people in the region, and it was called the People to People Conference. And then they decided on many things on how they wanted to be represented in negotiations, because they were kind of caught in the middle of the warring parties. So they actually came together and decided, oh, we want this group to represent us and our rights and our interests. So I thought that that was a very active role of the citizens to participate in that way. And you can see that really across different cases. And that's what I think it's very interesting as well. Is there a specific region in the world where you would say that there is more will to actually have this type of participation as a possibility than other regions? Are you focusing on some cases, for example, I don't know, the Middle East maybe? Yeah, no. So we started our data collection and now we've finished coding uh, the whole of Africa. Mm -hmm. So I can talk more about what we've seen in Africa. And now we've moved on to the Americas. But um, that's not something that we, like a pattern that we have um, noticed yet. But I can say that in some cases where I thought civil society maybe wouldn't have that much space. You could still see some things like popping up here and there. And it's very interesting to see how they managed to do that. So that maybe can something can yeah. be something to be explored as well. There are examples in Africa where you are very where it's very clear. You mentioned South Sudan. Or Sudan? Sudan, yeah. yeah. That was in Sudan. Yeah, but uh, there's lots of different types and of course in some cases you see more of one type of civil society participation than others. Like uh, if you look at Mozambique, they had a very big, also very well-known participation of the religious groups in mm-hmm. mediating the conflict. So mm-hmm. they started by connecting the parties and starting the conversation, but then they were present there during the whole peace process. But then that is basically what we can see in Mozambique. But then in cases like uh, Liberia, you have all kinds of different uh, activities and events as well. And the same with um, other countries like Uganda and Burundi. They had big participations in forums. And in the Congo as well, they had a huge conference with 360 participants and stuff like that. So it can vary from case to case, but you can also see it across the cases. And yeah. I think it's very interesting that you've been trying to quantify or in some way recognize trends and look at this topic of inclusive peace building, making it something where you look at the specific groups or specific places where citizens can participate. And ultimately, I think that that's also one of the areas where uh, a lot of peace building will be directing its attention to in the near future. Um, Do you feel like it's a trend also, or is this just my my hunch, so to speak? Do you have the idea that it's becoming more popular to have peace agreements that are actually inclusive or propagating this approach? 
Mm-hmm. I think there has been a general trend in the public debate on from the beginning or we look back, uh, it was more focused on bringing all the warring actors uh, to the negotiation table. Uh, whereas I, I think there is increased pressure to also have other types of actors represented at peace negotiations. Uh, not necessarily at the negotiation table, as mm. Barbara mentioned, but also then what other types of uh, ways do we have of involving different types of civil society actors in peace negotiations? They don't, maybe in some cases, they uh, can be involved and still make a significant contribution, but through other fora, like being involved in parallel forums, or as Barbara also mentioned, where you have these, we see involvement of civil society through different types of mass demonstrations or protests, which uh, may be able to pressure the warring parties to actually go to the negotiation table. And then we may or may not see civil society engagement in, you know, at the at the table. Yeah. So, yeah, I think there is definitely a more of a increased awareness that we need to have more inclusive peace negotiations. Yeah, and that definitely ties into the whole the whole argument or the whole conclusion of your of your study, which shows that it really makes peace last longer mm-hmm. in terms of length and absence of violence. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's very interesting, and I wanted to add on to that because, as I can add only to our discussion or conversation, my experience in Colombia was in that sense very interesting because although there is an absence of violence with the group that was now, the FARC is now a political Mm -hmm. party. They have some seats in parliament. There is a lot of challenges, of course, also, if you want to, if you want to make a peace agreement, the more people you want to have at the table, the more difficult it can become to actually make an agreement happen. But what's happening in Colombia nowadays is that there is, historically, there's a lot of places where the state does not have presence on the ground. And, a lot of the most conflict-affected areas in Colombia that yeah. are prioritized through the peace agreement are actually experiencing difficulties with new violent groups who are popping up mm. and still having the the sense of conflict continues in those areas. Mm. So I think that there's also maybe some options for implementation. If you want to implement or stabilize a peace and you have a lot of civil society initiatives in Colombia, particularly, that are maybe connected, but also very autonomously trying to make peace. And this they were already doing before the agreement was signed. So I think there's also a very interesting opportunity for the state and for peace if you want to try and reach out to these initiatives and actually make something happen in terms of establishing contacts Mm -hmm which can be interesting if you want to think about the future of peace building or the implementation. And we can draw a lot from this research that you are doing and you have done on the inclusion already inside of a peace agreement. Yeah, I mean, what we have seen so far is that civil society acts very well as to bridge the parties and get them to start talking or to bridge the interest of the people and at the table. So I think it's a very good way of using civil society that they can actually 
there is a, a lack, right? There, when we discuss what the concept of civil society is, it's always, we joke, it's always what's not there. So it's not government, it's not business, it's not this, not that. So it's what's left. So I think they can do a lot with that space that no one's occupying. And that's it works for the implementation, like you said, in Colombia. But it also works for other types of connections that they want to make. Yeah, no, I like that. You, you're giving me the perfect leg up to my last <laughs> question, perhaps, before you want to add anything onto it. So what is your vision of the future as concerns inclusion of civil society actors in peace processes? That's a very difficult question. I think that... Um, what we have seen in, in the broader debate is that inclusion has been shown to be really important because exclusion more broadly can, uh, can lead to um, more conflict. And for the, just for that reason, inclusion is important. And since we also have evidence showing that civil society inclusion in peace agreements can be beneficial for peace. I think that kind of points us into the direction that uh, we need to strive more for inclusive processes. And there are also normative reasons for why you should include different segments of society when you're going to make peace. At the same time, I also think that uh, there are so many different things that we don't know about what is perhaps the most effective forms of participation and, and so forth. So. I think it's important that we do kind of try to map out the different roles uh, that civil society can play and also look more broadly at the different types of roles of civil society, what actors are included and in which there are perhaps different types of civil society actors that are not engaged and perhaps should be more engaged. So at the same time as I think that there are some, some evidence that points us in the direction of having more inclusive peace processes, I also think that there are so many different questions that are remain unanswered. So uh, in one way, we have a lot of I, work to I, do. Barbara and I can, <laughs> and, and, and a lot of other people can, can be busy for some quite some time in terms of trying to better understand when inclusion works at, at its best. Okay, well, I want to thank you very much for your time. I think we've uh, covered quite a lot of topics and maybe we can let the listeners let it sink in for a moment. Mm -hmm. But thank you so much for oh, your thank time. You for thank you for inviting yeah. us to participate in this, in this discussion. Oh, it was my pleasure. <laughs>